So yeah, I'm th- trying to think of what to say. Well, whatever you settle on, I feel like we should encourage people to tell us what they like and we should just stick with that. <laughs> so we don't have to come up with a new one every time. Yeah, or we should just settle on one and just be like, hello. Sandwiches. No. <laughs> so can we just pick one now or do you want to <laughs> sure. do this later? Okay. Sure. <laughs> Welcome to Sand, a podcast about Dune, uh, where we're going to be discussing Dune Messiah. I'm Molly, and joined with my co-host Lance. Hey, Molly. Hi, Lance. Okay, hi, Lance. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so we're going to be discussing some numbers of chapters. Do you remember which? I don't know how accurate my labels are, but I did write down... Mm -hmm. 16, 17, 18, and 19. Well, hey, I'll I'll trust you. It starts with (laughs) the quote that goes, (laughs) no matter how exotic human civilization becomes, no matter the the developments of life and society, nor the complexity of the, okay, this is the full sentence, but you get it, no matter how exotic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's where we're starting and we're going for from there. So you do the math. Yeah, you do the math. Hopefully you've read them. Yeah. Already. Uh, how's it going? It's going. It's going all right. It's going all right. Doing Thanks. fine. How about you? Yep. Doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's really pretty. Yeah, it was really cold yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I like that it's still chilly. Evidently, there was an ice storm in uh, Oklahoma that like ruined the city, according to my parents. The city of Oklahoma? Uh, in Norman. They're in Norman. <laughs> the okay. great greater Oklahoma City area. Oh God! Really? What? What do you mean ruined the city? It ruined the trees. Oh no! Yeah, they died. Like, they all killed them. It or just something? like weighed down, and all these branches broke, and a lot of the mm. trees died. And yeah, my dad says it's going to take like years for it to be repaired to kind of grow back to where it was. Oh, my God, that sucks. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I would hate that. Yeah. <laughs> if all of a sudden all the trees died bummer (laughs) yeah total bummer but i'm glad that we got some cold weather i just wish it hadn't like destroyed so much stuff yeah in my old neighborhood oh well at least trees do grow it's true it's Um, one thing they do yes (laughs) it is the one thing yeah i mean look i've been looking at trees more during this period of time and they're they're cool I'm a fan. I'm a fan as well. They're very just <laughs> solid. Mm-hmm. It's wild how how kind of still they are. Solid they <laughs> <Yeah>. are. <laughs> okay, so this is nature talk. Um, 
All right. Uh, you want to hop into movies? Let's hop into movies. Sure. I'll read my list. Okay. Uh, so I watched Color Out of Space, mm -hmm. House on Haunted Hill, the Halloween specials of both Garfield and Charlie Aww. Brown, <laughs> Coma, Eyes Without a Face, 30 Days of Night, Train to Basan, and Borat 2. <laughs> you can tell one, one of those movies doesn't exactly fit the pattern, right. but I guess I'll talk about first train to Basan, which is like, uh, or Basan, I guess, but it, it's a South Korean movie that I've heard lots of people talk about for like whatever, two years now since it came out. Um, and fi I finally watched and it lives up to the hype. It's like, as far as zombie movies go, it's really good and has really good characters. And, you know, you actually get involved in caring about these characters and getting upset when they die or when they get turned into a zombie oh, no. and it's creepy because they're you know they're on a train obviously and being on a moving train with a bunch of zombies is is scary mm -hmm. but it's good it, it it definitely like kept me interested and excited the whole the whole way through were they really nasty zombies they're pretty nasty zombies how, yeah like how do they yeah. walk around and stuff so they're kind of like fast zombies which normally i'm like come on <laughs> yeah. slow down zombies it's kind of. It seems to be a hallmark that they're that they are steady but slow. Yeah. So in this, I what I liked is they gave them the weakness of not being able to see in the dark. Okay. So like sure. they, that's kind of like a new twist or whatever. They're not super fast, but they're like faster than like you know George Romero Night of the Living Dead kinds of zombies. So they 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 can run. They um, can run. Yeah, they can. But run. that doesn't make any sense. How do you make the decision to run if you don't have a brain? <laughs> Well, how do you move at all if you don't have a brain? They're always moving at the same pace. That's what that to me is what. Well, yeah. the idea is that they're 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 driven on instinct only, and so oh. and their instinct is to eat people. So like that's what they're drawn to. So in in the case of this movie, their instinct makes them very hungry to eat flesh. So <laughs> okay. they want to they want to get at that human flesh. Yeah, and I guess running is a good way to do that. But despite the fact that they could move, they were very creepy zombies. Uh, and they did this thing, like, because they would, like, trap a bunch of them in, like, one enclosed space. And then a lot of times, like, glass or something would break or the door would break. And there would just be, like, piles of zombies come tumbling out, <laughs> which was pretty Ew, cool. gross. <laughs> that's that looks pretty cool. great. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. all on a train. No, there's moments where there's like they'll stop at a train station mm, okay. <laughs> or have to get from one train to another train, but it's mostly on a train. Mm -hmm. It's mostly train driven. This movie, <laughs> I like. The, I like a train driven movie. It's compact yeah. and uh, cozy. This doesn't sound so yeah. cozy, but <laughs> it wasn't super cozy. <laughs> no. uh, does anybody make it out alive? No, don't tell me. Never mind. Uh, yeah, I won't, I won't ruin it. I won't but ruin I, it for you. I want to know. Okay sounds pretty good and it's south korean mm -hmm. yep and i don't know i guess i'll talk about color out of space mm -hmm. but is this colorado space <laughs> color out of space ah. which does sound like colorado space <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which honestly i feel like might have been better yeah Color Out of Space is this guy, this guy Richard Stanley, who's this kind of in the world of uh, horror sci-fi. It's like a legend, even though he's really only made one movie that anybody ever talks about, and it's a ripoff of of 
like Terminator meets Predator what is kind it? of hardware. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's not like it's not a bad movie. No. It's just like it's I, I don't get why people blow him up as this like legend of of horror and sci-fi. But I think it has to do with the fact that he they made a documentary about him because he was originally given the role of directing Island of Dr. Moreau, mm-hmm. like back in the 90s. And he got fired on set. And uh, after they replaced him, he stalked the production. Cool. And was like hiding out on this island <laughs> going crazy. No way. Yeah. So it's like a real a doc- life documentary about horror him. movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so I think that's why he like w- was given a, this comeback. And sure, he got... he's a legend. <laughs> cool. <laughs> but he got Nicolas Cage involved, and it's like a you know it's a it's a short story from H.P. Lovecraft. So mm-hmm. it's just like about a creepy like psychedelic space alien stuff, and it's honestly it's just like Annihilation, but less grounded. Mm. Uh, it's it just didn't quite work and nicholas cage is just let he's he's allowed to be too nicholas cagey annoying and it just doesn't really fit the movie yeah. it, it's 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 cool like there's some cool like effects in it and i like the fact that it's just you know a bunch of people going you know going crazy and essentially on space acid um <laughs> what is that's space? Cool, what but does it that really... mean space acid is that just acid in space well it's yeah, so this meteor hits and it makes this family start to go crazy and and they also start to mutate. Cool. Uh, <laughs> and so everyone's just kind of like essentially on acid the whole movie, um, just doing crazier and crazier <laughs> things as the movie goes on and their and their brains are melting and and animals are fusing together and stuff. Okay, <laughs> it does sound like annihilation actually. Yeah, it's it felt it feels very much like annihilation. Um, does uh, Nicolas Cage ever like float out in the middle of space? And like, do his Nicolas Cage kind of yell? No, oh. no, he doesn't. Okay, it's not fun like that. That would be fun. <laughs> it's like if they let him be more Nicolas Cage, it might be more fun. Mm-hmm. But they don't like. He just like he's just super stressed out. Yeah, he's like playing like he's playing what's supposed to be kind of a grand, grounded character who occasionally goes crazy. But when he goes crazy, he goes Nicolas Cage crazy, <laughs> and you're just like totally brought out of the movie because you're like, oh, you're just being Nicolas Cage now. Yeah, which you weren't being like two seconds ago. Okay. Well, sounds interesting. Sounds like a a swing, a big swing. Yeah, glad I watched it. It just doesn't. It's you know, watch Annihilation. It's it's better. Well, hey, let's uh, loop in some pod promo real quick and talk Garfield. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure y'all have y'all discussed it on on the pod. We recorded a whole episode mm-hmm. with special guest Chrissy Shackelford, mm-hmm. and the episode, I have no, it's going to come out on Friday. We recorded way too long of an episode talking about <laughs> the thing. I don't know, like Nick edits these, so I have no idea how long it's going to be when it comes out, but they're normally like seven to 10 minute episodes, and we recorded for at least 45 minutes. <laughs> well, yeah, but you usually discuss every detail of every frame of a three frame comic <laughs> so this is a 30 minute right. special right yeah. exactly it was fun to watch the uh the version that we watched had all the commercials old commercials left in oh that's fun. fun to watch cool yeah i do like that was that oh, god this is such a problematic commercial but like i always loved it as a kid the like um colombian coffee commercial oh uh no that one was not in mm. there what about yeah, it was mostly McDonald's. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, sounds cozy. Yeah, I don't think I've cozy. ever seen that actually. I mean, 
unless you love Garfield, there's not much of a reason to. It's clearly for kids. Uh, Nick pointed out it won an Emmy. That year. <laughs> well, yeah, people love Halloween specials, like almost more than anything else on TV. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I mean, there's singing and, you know, mm-hmm. some fun Garfield jokes, but. It's not like amazing or anything. Well, I mean, I told you I've seen the Christmas one like 8 million times. So uh, yeah, maybe I'll give it a try before Saturday. Well, maybe we'll watch the Christmas one and you can come on the show and talk about it. Yes! (laughs) Booked. Okay. Well, I guess I'll talk about my movies now. Oh, also, I love that. I love House on Haunted Hill. Such a good movie. But that's a Vincent Price. The original. Yeah. 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 It's so good. Yeah. Okay. On the Rocks. Uh, oh, these are the movies I watched <laughs> on the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Extraordinary, The Frighteners, Arsenic and Old Lace, Cabin in the Woods, and like 30 minutes of Shaun of the Dead. So my favorite movie I watched was The Frighteners, which I had never seen. Really? <laughs> yes. What do you mean, really? I, oh, I'm just surprised that you that uh, that you really liked it. Yeah, I really liked it. It was so um, fun and well told. I mean, I love... I think that I was just like getting Lord of the Rings because it was Peter Jackson. And I mm-hmm. felt like some of the like Lord of the Rings storytelling, I don't know, at least the rhythm and the like. Oh, for sure. Was totally Definitely. there. Yeah. With like the fantasy. Yeah. So I loved how many stories were in it. Like it was just so there were so many like fun storylines and it all came together. So in such a satisfying way, I also kind of haven't seen Michael J. Fox in anything out of um, Back to the Future. And oh, yeah, he was so good in it and so funny and like uh, sweet as the like, you know, uh, con man down on his luck, uh, Ghostbuster with (laughs) i mean it's a good setup that this guy like can see ghosts and so he has the ghosts like perform you know possessions or whatever be poltergeist and then he'll come and like clear him out Mm -hmm. and he had a really bad car which i thought was funny i don't know i was cracking up the whole time i thought it was so great um and then that these ghosts are like scared of a much scarier thing you know Mm -hmm. it's a good premise and yeah so I, yeah, I guess I wouldn't have considered myself a Michael J. Fox fan, but uh, I really uh, got a lot out of his um, presence in the movie. And I also liked the city a lot. It was like, was that in New Zealand? Because it was supposed to be in America. Good question. I mean, I thought it was the Pacific Northwest. That's just what I assumed. Wherever it was, it was so beautiful. So that was a plus. Yeah, so the story, you know, is that... He's this con man ghostbuster guy. And I've already said the plot. <laughs> These ghosts are scared of it. And yeah, I don't know. It's good. Yeah, I uh uh when that movie came out, I was I was like super psyched because I, you know, I really like Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um and it, that was his first like uh mainstream kind of like big movie uh that he gotta make. And uh Danny Elfman, it was like his Danny last Elfman, four. yeah. Yeah, it was like the last time he did a Danny Elfman kind of score because uh-huh. like his music kind of became a little more like generic movie music after that. So it was like just really cool to like get some old school Danny Elfman and like, I don't know, ghosts and in f- fun. And there's that weird mystery yeah. in it of who, the you know, who's the killer and all that. Yeah, stuff. it was a good mystery. I mean, I yeah. can, you know, you kind of know, but like not really. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. it was... I. 
I don't know. Yeah, mystery wrapped in this like supernatural thing. There's romance. There's everything. It's got mm -hmm. it all. And then I guess also, well, I hadn't seen Arsenic and Old Lace since I was a kid. And I used to watch that movie all the time. It's Cary Grant in it um, and uh, Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre make an appearance. It's a Halloween I forgot that it takes place on Halloween, but I did know it was kind of like, you know, spooky. Yeah, the premise for that one is basically these two sweet old ladies are, well, you know what, whatever. You could just <laughs> let it, like it comes at, at sort of the beginning, but still, I, I mean, I think it's a fun reveal when it happens because Cary Grant is like my favorite version of Cary Grant in this, where he is just so over the top. His facial expressions are so wacky and wild and he's like still playing the straight character. So it works because he's, you know, suave, debonair, Cary Grant, but he's like playing, you know, he's like falling over furniture. There's a lot of like slapstick comedy in it and his like, yeah, his facial expressions are really big. And I heard that he thought that he was like terrible in this movie because he thought he just did way overdid it. But like I was having such a blast watching him in it he's yeah it was just so good yeah I don't know I I really like it. it's really funny there's like this one character who plays a guy who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt and uh it's quite funny <laughs> and then Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre Boris Karloff plays Cary Grant's like estranged weird brother <laughs> obviously he's pretty weird <laughs> they're brothers <laughs> and That's weird. Peter Lorre is like his personal plastic surgeon <laughs> like traveling plastic does surgeon. he play like a real peter laurie-esque oh character super peter i mean he's like <sighs> like the whole time like he's always <laughs> at boris karloff's back and is just like okay well, <laughs> what are we doing you know <laughs> he's really <laughs> peter laurie in it and uh yeah the the two old his like aunts are really sweet and uh, charming it's so good it's like a great it's just a very cozy old movie that's really funny and slapsticky i've never seen it i will probably watch it yeah soon great. sounds good it's super good well i was gonna ask about the frighteners mm -hmm. but i guess i'll ask you how you felt about had you seen cabin in the woods before uh to be honest i was real blasted out of my mind <laughs> so absolutely i really hadn't seen it no Turns out. <laughs> okay. Well, how did you feel about Cabin of the Woods? Um, let's see. I liked it. I saw it at um, the Blue Starlight, you know, mm. theater. So that was fun. It's a drive-in theater. You like sit by the woods for these scary movies, um, right? And I, I thought it was really clever, really tight. Joss Whedon just is so creepy. <laughs> In the way he like characterizes, particularly like the, you know, the like nerdy woman in the um, movie, like down to what shoes she wears, like it's just so precise in what I think is like his fetish <laughs> as far as women go. And then like the way she behaves in it is very like his idea. I just, I don't know. I know that these are based on archetypes. So like that's the thing, but he seems to really like these archetypes. So that was fine. But I did think it was really funny and really fun. And those zombies were really scary. They were zombies. Yeah, they were extremely gross um, and really, really hard to defeat. <laughs> 
And yeah, I don't know. I also did enjoy the archetypal characters. Like it's like Chris Hemsworth. I don't know anybody else. I don't think there's anybody else too famous in it. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Do you like it? I remember liking it when it came out. I'm actually thinking about rewatching it. Uh, I mean, I I remember the characters being very intentionally. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, stereotypes. Um, And I liked, you know, being like a horror nerd, like picking out Mm. what each thing is from. Like, oh, that's that that monsters from this is it which is like a takeoff of this and then once you know once things go wild i think the characters are really funny especially the, the characters that are like running things yeah they're so funny and those two actors are so good in it um, exactly yeah. yeah they're hilarious there were a few lines that i thought like were some of the funniest lines i feel like i've heard in a movie in a while just like so immediately funny so yeah i think that Joss Whedon can write pretty good comedy. I do like, too. I think he writes pretty funny characters. I do too. And actually, I think he's a really good writer. I also think that this was a cl- very like rich movie. <laughs> a lot. Like you said, like there are tons and tons of references. It knows exactly like what it's parodying and then also doing mm-hmm. it really well. So yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's definitely a great movie. I just like get creeped out by him slightly sometimes. <laughs> I think that's fair. And maybe he's a creep. I don't know. It may may have turned out that he he is a creep. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I remember there was like a big takedown of him during some of the Me Too stuff from a -hmm. few former, like maybe his ex-wife. So it all seemed a little suspect anyway. I honestly could not say for sure. I mean, nobody can. Same here. I don't know. (laughs) No, no. But I think it's also because I've been watching a lot of Nexium stuff. So I'm just like... You know, the idea of like some guy controlling the narrative is like a little creepy. And I do feel like there was a part in the movie. I'll just spoil it at the very end when she's about to kill the stoner guy because Mm -hmm. she thinks he's going to destroy the world. And he just lets the zombie like beat her up like super hardcore. I felt like he wanted to beat her up so bad throughout the whole movie I don't know. They're just, I think I was just mm. feeling like some deep misogyny there that was like, ugh, like kind of like freaked me out, but not that much. <laughs> so I do think he's a bit of a misogynist. No, I think for sure. And that it's like he has a Keith Raniere kind of like power, power situation going, but he also is a good writer. <laughs> All right. Should we dive into the dunes? Oh, yes. So <laughs> to this mess of a chapter this one i was having trouble with oh good me too <laughs> <laughs> this one i could not follow really i mean the plot's pretty basic yeah. he he goes to meet his contact and and ends up in this church that Aaliyah is like doing a q a session and- <laughs> yeah it's like a platinum badge <laughs> I couldn't really tell how Paul felt about all of it because yeah. at first it seemed like Paul is kind of like, oh, what is this this religion side of politics has really gotten out of hand? What is this? But then he seems to be in awe of Aaliyah and he seems to be getting into the spirit of things that every and everyone else is like, you know, freaking out over her. And he seems to be like also freaking out over her. And I just didn't I just I guess I just missed the the point of like, how does Paul really feel about all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of felt there was like one line in particular where it felt like Paul had been yearning for the ability to worship somebody for a long time and hated 
you know, felt lonely that he was the one that they were worshiping and that it was all fake. So I don't know that it felt like a relief, I guess, to, or met a need that he recognizes all people have um, of spirituality or, you know, being in the presence of something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I thought that was kind of cool, like that the circumstances of being in a crowd in a sacred place and going through ritual seem to have the same effect on most people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It felt very revival tinty. Like it yeah. felt very like, you know, like someone coming out and, and healing people or like claiming <laughs> that they can solve everybody's problems. Yeah. Um, and then people like buying it like suckers. Except for in this case, Aaliyah's in a pissy mood. <laughs> she is. Yeah, she's like real, sh- has a lot of comebacks for these. Yeah, so she's not like having it and not like she, she's kind of giving them shitty answers that they don't want. Well, yeah, it also reminded me of like the king at the top of the hill and all the peasants are lined up like all the way down the mountain or whatever. And they're like coming to mm-hmm. ask for like a cup of se- a cup of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it's coming to ask for a cup of sugar. <laughs> I thought that the uh questions that they were or the what they wanted her to do were funny. Or at least I I really liked the last one. <laughs> it was good comedic cu- timing, I thought, where the first guy is like can, or the woman's like, "Can you bring back my son?" And then the second one's like, "Hey, I have a business proposal." And then yeah. the third guy is like I've been asked to kill a man. <laughs> a boy shouted off from to the right. Just reminded me of one of your characters, actually, where it's like, um, <laughs> like all the way in the back, he's like, oh, I've been asked to kill a guy. <laughs> Should I? I don't know. <laughs> it is pretty funny. Yeah. But yeah, at first, Paul is just like, you know, doing a bit of his night walking. There's a very cool description of or at least it's a chant that they do about Aaliyah, the first one. Oh, that she rides the same word of a space? Yeah. Yeah, it seems to lean on the idea of her kind of being a girl. Oh. Because it mentions, like, the braids of her hair, mm-hmm. sweet fragrance, flower-scented. I don't know. It feels like they're, it's, it's, a, it's a very, like, separating her from Paul because she's a girl. She's got braids. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Later, they're like, she brings us bread and milk. Feels kind of girly, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They're very feminine. Yeah, and then he just like, I guess the the rest of this is he just meets that old fremen who's like, all right, let's go. Time to go meet Othheim. Oh well, there's a strange thing where he's watching Aaliyah, and he's like, Aaliyah had emerged here just for him, for him alone. But was that? wrapped up in that feeling that he is experiencing with everyone else uh, like that i could see how you could feel like if you go to see someone that you're like amazed by like the pope or whatever when catholics go to see the pope and they're like oh he's here just for me yeah like this is like divine timing somehow that she's mm-hmm. here and you're like oh she's here and i'm here <laughs> this mm-hmm. must have meaning um yeah they do kind of a classic call and response do you think that she does something seems like he was hinting that at the like that maybe something had shifted like there was something going on different than usual you mean with her vision yeah what i feel like they're going for is the idea kind of pushing us towards the idea that 
Paul's kind of accepted his vision as the only answer, mm-hmm. even though, he, you know, he, he claims to have examined all the possibilities and that's how his, you know, power works or whatever. But he's like gotten to this point where he's just accepted one single vision of the future and he's just stuck to it mm-hmm. because he feels like if he deviates from that, it'll be worse. Yeah. But I think what they're what they're doing in this book is kind of suggesting that, well, Aaliyah has the same prescience that he does. She sees something different. Mm-hmm. What if Paul talked to Aaliyah about her prescience, but it doesn't seem like they do that? Yeah. Why don't they talk about it? Right, you think it's just obvious. They're the only <laughs> two people that they that they know in the universe that has this prescience. Why wouldn't they compare notes? I mean, this has been stressing Paul out so badly for so many years. You would think he'd be like, "Hey, Leah, do you, like, can we like have an aside here, real quick? Like, I have this really bad, <laughs> really bad vision of the future, and I'm like really <laughs> fucking stuck in it. Like, do you, what do you, what are you seeing right now? I don't know. It's it's yeah. So yeah. that's funny. And then he kind of like laments at the end that he can't see, he should see what Aaliyah saw, Mm -hmm. but he can't see what she sees. I mean, I guess it's the same thing. She wouldn't really probably be able to explain it to Paul. Like he can't explain it to anybody. But yeah, it was kind of, I was also wondering, because he seems to keep saying that maybe something will intervene and like there will be suggestions that the future he's going down is going to be a little different than what he had already seen. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I was thinking maybe Aaliyah's version of the future is like the thing that alters his somehow. Like, that they like. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. This next chapter is officially the last chapter that I read in this book. Oh, so really? I, I don't know what happens after it. Yeah. <gasps> Exciting. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So the next one, yeah, we're with this old man. They bring him to. I guess one of the things we, did, we forgot to cover in that last chapter was that Paul's kind of being followed very loosely but also very like Mm -hmm. at the same time like everyone's very vigilantly everyone's like tracking him there's like ornithopters (laughs) flying in like random patterns in the sky kind of like tracking his every movement but it's the farthest away people have ever been security wise Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the president gets to go to disney world (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. but the whole park shut down yeah (laughs) yeah he buys one of those mickey mouse hats (laughs) yeah Rides the Dumbo ride all day. Yeah, but in this chapter, Paul goes to Othheim's house. Yeah, Othheim. Meets Othheim. This is cool. We finally start getting a bit of a vision. Uh, like, oh, right oh, when of he... His, of his vision. Yes. yes. It's like, finally, we are ta- we have a vision. And it's because it's at the crux of, like, this is... This is- <laughs> The climax of his vision. He's he's just like going. This is finally it. It's gonna happen because it's like it's just getting you excited about like oh we're finally gonna get to see what it is. He's yeah. been dreading this whole time. I know. So yeah, I was really excited at the. He says, "Why am I hesitating? It is the second door from the far end. I knew that without being told." I was like, "Yes, this is that's that's some prescience. <laughs> <laughs> that's some vision work. We haven't seen that once yet." <laughs> we meet B Jazz. Bejazz. That's how you thought. I thought it was Bejazz. Bejazz. Yeah, Bejazz. 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 Bejazz man, or <laughs> hop on. Bejazz. Yeah. <laughs> Who is the human distrans that they were talking about? Yeah, it's pretty disappointing. I mean, you know, not disappointing exactly, but yeah, that it's like this dwarf, and he's kind yeah. of like this magical toy. He does kind of like make mention of it, I suppose, where he's like they they lean into it, calling him a Tulaxu yeah. toy. Yeah, but at the same time, there's one 
person that size in this whole yeah. book series, and he's like this magical dwarf. <laughs> he's like an extremely magical dwarf that speaks in riddles. In riddles, yeah. yeah. Which is so, he's so much reminds me of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. oh, is that what he's based on? <gasps> Maybe. Oh my God. Well, hey, it's Lynch. Yeah. Exactly. Could have gotten him there. Although he doesn't quite, well, no, he says like, weird and offset off-putting as that dwarf yeah he says weird he like rhymes and stuff and he's freaking out he's like extremely yeah. like scared <laughs> so yeah. he, it's kind of it is upsetting to have somebody like really upset and agitated and speaking just in these like incomprehensible riddles and he's all paul can think about because yeah paul's seen this vision so many times but but jazz has not been here. <laughs> no, but jazz. <laughs> no, but jazz. And so he's just like, what is what is wrong with this vision? Everything else is exactly as I saw it, except for this this dwarf wasn't here in yeah. my vision. And so every time <laughs> B jazz says something, he's like, well, what does that mean? What's that mean? Yeah, he's and like... the fact that he speaks in riddles is, makes it even more confusing for him. <laughs> Poor Paul. Yeah, but he's also kind of excited that he's there because it suggest that maybe there is an alternative and like he just yeah that there's some kind of deviation from what he knows is about to happen Mm -hmm. his instinct it seems to just like grab b jazz and just like run for it well that's what i keep they they keep grabbing him and run they give he like later gives him to stillgar to grab and run yeah so yes i do think that that's like the energy in the book they kind of because he has all the names of the traitors who are like in the plot to take him down and steal a worm right He's like has that. Yeah, he's got a list. He's got a list of all the traitors in his brain. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, which I did think was clever because he's being protected somehow by someone with prescience, and that's why Paul didn't know. He knew he left with the name somehow, but he didn't know how. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. That part was obscured from him. That made sense. So this is the point where I kind of, and I'm probably just not understanding it, but. Why did Sightail need to get involved here? Because it seems like Othheim and his wife, Dari, Mm -hmm. both think that their daughter is still alive. And it seems like they were going to send their daughter to go summon Paul here anyway. So why did Sightail need to become the daughter and and go see Paul and tell him to come? Because it sounds like that was going to happen either way. Oh, it's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess it just isn't. Is Paul still missing something? Yeah, one could argue that he's missing a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I still don't know, like, what Saitel's whole motivation or agenda yeah. is. B Jazz is like a creation by the Telelaxu. Mm-hmm. So Saitel had something to do with well, didn't him you feel getting. Like Bejazz. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, didn't you feel like he maybe like a grenade sort of like that they're going to take him or like a Trojan horse sort of thing for multiple? I reasons? think that's what you're supposed to think in the book. I think when really? reading this, you're supposed to be like, oh, be jazz is like a bomb and he's going to blow up and that's what's going to kill <laughs> oh Paul. I feel like that's meant to make you think that. Well, yeah, because he was created by the Tililaxu. So you're like, well, of course. Mm -hmm. And he seems to be on Paul's side somehow, which doesn't feel correct. Why the hell would he be on Paul's side? And Paul even like figures it out. Like, because he's like, these guys could never afford this. Right. You know, they don't just throw these things away. 
they're very expensive. Yeah. So he was clearly planted here and, and sent here because of me. But it still doesn't explain why Sightail needed to like intervene as the daughter. I Yeah, it makes me want to go back and look at what he actually told Paul. But I was so distracted by Paul already knowing that she was a face dancer. That was another reason to not even have Sightail go because he immediately knew he was a face dancer. So that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, it seems more, it seems like it would convince Paul better if you just let the real daughter go, then it's yeah. very genuine. Mm-hmm. My two theories were that one, he didn't think that she would convince him that she would like give up or wasn't capable of doing it, maybe because she's like too addicted to Samuda. Or two, before he went to Paul as her, he went to his parents, Othheim, as her and convinced Othheim to send her to Paul. Yeah, that could that could be. I mean, but also we're kind of forgetting Farouk is the one that brought Othheim's daughter into it in the first place. Mm. Farouk is the one who's working with Saitel and Othheim is not. You know, he has allegiance to Paul. So maybe... He had been operating as Lichna for a while. And maybe she brought in Bajaz. Yeah, I don't know. And she told them that, oh, you know, like this dwarf has all of the names of, I don't know, like, yeah. And maybe it's because, just because she was just like too addicted to Samuda to pull it off. So he had to step <laughs> God, in. That's dark. No. Yeah. <laughs> you think that that's it? I don't know. She accidentally know. got addicted to Samuda for this random, <laughs> really tiny subplot. I don't think she knew it was a subplot. No, you know, like that this guy's son needed a wife so badly that he addicted her to Samuda. And you think yeah, that that's, that's just what, an inconvenience yeah. for the m- or more major plot of Saitail. Yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Saitail was like, we planted this dwarf, but now here's this this hiccup. Their daughter is is, is with this guy and addicted to Samuda. So I've got to go track her down and do it myself as her. Yeah, I don't know. I think that they addicted her to to Samuda, that was just convenient. That's how, you know, she was kind of easy to control. Farouk had already been working with Saitail. He was like, hey, you know what? We could use this somehow, this like circumstance. I think that that's probably what happened. And that's how they got to Othheim. We, mm-hmm. we do meet Dari, one of Othheim's wives. And she seems to not really like like Paul. Definitely not. And she doesn't hide it. She thinks he kind of like abandoned the Fidekin and and their and their ways. Yeah, she doesn't trust him. Yeah, I mean, when he does summon Bajaz, he says a pretty cool line, which is "Usul, that's the base of the pillar." Bajaz said, "How can Usul be base when I'm the basest thing living?" <laughs> so sad. And then Althaim says he always speaks like this. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, she's not a fan. Paul says something really Paul and annoying at the end. He'd not expected gratitude, would have been burdened by it more than he could bear. But that Othheim and Dury were looking quite angry. <laughs> so it is fun. It's interesting that he thought that they would be grateful. But in fact, this has not been like some joyful, you know, they're serving their lord and master kind of moment. It's interesting that Paul's just sticking around literally waiting for every word he's seen in his vision to be said. That once Otham says, do what you must, Usul, Paul's just like, okay, well, that's the- That's the line. That's he the last it. word. <laughs> Time to go. All right. I'm out of here. That would make life so much easier. Would it? 
I think it would be a bore. Well, yeah, it would suck. I mean, it would be really boring. The way he presents I, it, I think it'd be it's a joyless. Waking nightmare. Okay. Paul has been waiting for this moment for so long that it does feel a little different than like the sensation that you can't wake up from your dream, basically, that you're stuck mm-hmm. in whatever your consciousness has created. It is kind of fun, though, that Paul is like, yeah, he's just letting all that happen, but then. Because the jazz is the weird wild card, the wild card element that he's like, Paul's still trying to figure out like what his powers are, like what his angle is, like, can he see the future too? So it was kind of fun because it, it felt like a play was happening, but Paul was not saying the lines that he was supposed to be saying to them. So they were all saying exactly mm-hmm. what they needed to say. Paul wasn't really interacting with them. Instead, he'd be like, oh, wait, can you see the future too? <laughs> so he would like break it all the time, like break it a bunch during this, which I felt like was a cool mm-hmm. like whole setting. I was really excited to be in a, in a vision. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was really well told and very yeah. tense just because like we were finally at this vision where we know everything is going to mm-hmm. go bad. And you were introduced with this element of like, well, this isn't anything like the vision. So it might not be the way we expect mm-hmm. it to be. Yeah. It's like, will Paul find the moment where he can escape or not? Or is he like in this cage? We get the phrase, the urn of the desert, you know, that a worm is the urn of the desert. So that brings us to... This little short little chapter where we get the thing, the thing that Paul has been dreading for a while. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to say, so this first, this little passage at the beginning is so weird. I forgot at the, in the first chapter we talk about, he has this long paragraph kind of about like the rise of the bureaucratic worker in um, Paul's Mm -hmm. empire that like they just, they no longer have any spirit. They just follow rules and order. And it just sounded like his takedown of like the bureaucratic class, like that you're not operating from any sense of your own, you know, you have no connection to anything, just like what comes before and what comes under you. And then here seems to be saying that there's violence inherent in everything and that by like making somebody work (laughs) a certain job, you're taking away hours of their life maliciously. Which was, I was pretty, I thought that was cool. Yeah. It was like a very like pro pro worker. worker. (laughs) Yeah. Like suddenly we're in like a labor movement, (laughs) Um, which I don't know why it's in here, but it's it's cool. There is this kind of undercurrent of him criticizing, I suppose, like the bureaucratic class and pointless life. But yeah, that goes in with anything of like not following your own sense and following some god instead yeah so anyway this is the big moment yeah paul turns on his shield so you think oh okay so it's probably not that he gets attacked personally and they just kind of like talk about how there's going to be danger stilgar comes and grabs bejazz grabs bejazz and then stone burners go off yeah and just blind everybody yeah it's crazy it blows it's kind of crazy yeah blows up Othheim's house yeah. Paul goes blind, but can immediately still see because he has his Paul vision. should have done this years ago. Yeah, just cut out his eyes. <laughs> yeah, he should have cut out his own eyes. <laughs> the first time someone asked him like what his visions were all about, he should have cut out his eyes. Yeah. And been like, I can still see you. Yeah. 
it blinds some a bunch of other Fremen. Bunch of innocent people, yeah. And there's this moment where it sounds like the I guess the stone stone burner keeps working for a little while and starts to head towards the core of the planet. Yeah. Which is really cool, cool and scary. <laughs> yes. What would have happened? I mean, I guess it would have just exploded. I think that's what it was kind of suggested is if it reached the core, the planet would just blow up. <laughs> yeah, that there's a nuclear like a, a molten core underneath the dunes and it was a close call. Yeah. It was exciting. I thought it was going to happen. You thought Arrakis would just blow up? <laughs> well, why not? I know it totally could happen. It totally could. It would have been a cool way to just go in in the second book. If you're like looking to blow up Paul's empire, like literally yeah. just fucking blow up Arrakis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, that doesn't happen. Just like, I don't know, probably like 40 people or so go blind. Their eyes mount out of their heads. Literally, mm-hmm. that is what happens, yeah. it sounds like, that their yeah. eyeballs just melt. Turn into goo, yeah. And just like- I was reading one comment on somebody who was like, you know, I've accepted so many things in this book. I've accepted future sense. I've accepted whatever. And then he was like, but the J-rays? <laughs> That's <laughs> I kind of had to really like stare out the window and accept, you know, take a moment to accept J-rays that just burn only your eyeballs out. That's funny. I don't think that that's any like weirder than a lot of the other stuff in the book. I do think yeah. it's weird that someone would intentionally make something that does that. Well, yeah, especially when it's such a con- it's like the most convenient thing for Paul's particular power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And really, I mean, it is just like it's a fun, very whimsical way for Frank Herbert to take Paul to the next level. I think that they're hilariously blunt. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree that they seem perfectly reasonable in this universe. Like, still, I don't know. Stoneburner to J Ray doesn't totally like compute in my head. Like, a J Ray sounds much more like it would come out of a gun than like um, I don't know, a charcoal or something that lights up. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, so it is. It is. It's cool. Yeah. So definitely, the Stoneburner radiation just melts their eyes. And then Paul kind of like makes a pronouncement that the Fremen that were blinded by this won't be left for dead. Right. Or used for their water, which is normally Fremen law. Yeah. And he's like, this is what's going to change. I'm going to buy everybody these Tilexu eyeballs. Which is wild because don't they don't they kind of, do they just not know at all that the Tilexu are sort of their major enemies at this point? Well, I think only we do, right? I guess because so, yeah. we know about Sightail, and even Paul like only kind of knows about Sightail. We're going to argue again. <laughs> <laughs> At no point when Sightail is posing as Lickna, does he say, oh, this was the face dancer that was in my chambers, right? Right, but like... Even later on in this chapter, he says, oh, yeah, I wouldn't want those eyes. Like, we don't know who's controlling them. I don't totally get why he gives everybody these free eyes and, like, why it's made <laughs> such a big deal. <laughs> Other than, like, maybe maybe it would be just a step too far for him to have known that everybody would go blind or something and, like, not correct it. The only thing I could think is that it's setting something up okay. for later. That they're all going to turn <laughs> and yeah. cyborg out. Shoot. Shoot laser beams <laughs> yeah. And they'll just go, no! <laughs> My generosity! 
Yeah, this is a short one. Well, okay, here's the other thing about that Fremen-Law, which all of a sudden they seem really uptight about this particular Fremen-Law. I would think that being blind wouldn't be the worst thing in Arrakis as a Fremen. Right. Like, aren't you mostly blind a lot of the time anyway because of, like, sandstorms? Seems like you have to rely on your ears much more than your eyes. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. I think they just picked that law because it lines up with okay, you're right. what yeah. needed to happen. It's just dramatic <laughs> writing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying, like, I, I, I think Fremen could be blind. I think so, too. I think they'd be good at being blind. Me, too. I would, I'd be excited to kind of know about a blind Fremen. But it ends with Paul thinking, now the forces gather. Another, yeah. Well, we are like five or so chapters from the end. So that's a good time uh-huh. for forces to gather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time for forces to gather. Exactly. Yeah. But now that Paul is walking around and just saying what everybody's wearing while he has like his empty eye sockets, it's such a power move. For him to be able to see without his eyes. Yeah. And just be like, hey, like nice pants. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, <gasps> but he, but his eye sockets, they're bl- they're blank. Yeah. It seems to like so distrust though. It seems yeah, to be. They don't like, like it. Yeah, people don't like it. Dilgar especially doesn't. Yeah, he's like, can you please just get some eyes? <laughs> <laughs> this is super weird. Well, it kind of feeds Paul's theory that people just want to be ruled. They just want despots. Yeah, that they just want an authoritarian figure, and they don't really want mystery like this. They don't. It want mm-hmm. something that is truly mysterious. Like the fact that Paul didn't have a real discernible power was probably what helped him take mm-hmm. charge because there was no kind of strange element to it. So I don't know. I thought that that is kind of cool that like all of a sudden Paul does have a very real power <laughs> and he's proving it all the yeah. time. And everybody is like, uh, yikes. <laughs> like, who is this? They think he's a demon, which we hear from the moon falls down song. Equation. He solved Equation. for martyrdom. He solved for <laughs> martyrdom. <laughs> Equation. He solved for martyrdom. <laughs> like a schoolhouse rock song. We get this next chapter seven days later. Starts with Paul hanging out with Johnny. Yeah. I guess he had a little bit of eye left in his <laughs> sockets and he had that removed. Yeah, he had that removed, but he's like letting those sockets air out. And he's like, I'm not going to get those eyes. I know that everybody else is getting those eyes, but I don't need mm-hmm. those eyes. Those weird metal eyes. And then Chani, yeah, she said that he started to speak very oddly. And she says that the, mm-hmm. you know, one quote he says is, I was baptized in sand and it, it cost me the knack of believing, which is an odd thing to say. But isn't she used to him saying shit like that? Yeah, I think so. You know, one thing we stumble upon here is that Paul keeps referring to their child in the oh, yes. singular sense. And Chani is like, wait, how does he not know I have twins? Yeah, can't he see all this stuff? Which I think is why Chani's kind of like, well, wait, hold on. If that thing's uh, wrong, what else is wrong? <gasps> yes, exactly. I don't know what you feel like the obvious symbolism of, of Paul. Burning your eyes out. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think the big thing seems to be that, well, now he has to trust his vision no matter what, because he has to trust not what his literal eyes see, what his vision is showing him. And he has to trust that that's, that that's the truth and that it's showing him the yeah. absolute truth. And he has to commit fully to this this path that he's on. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it seems to have given him a lot of confidence 
But then, yes, there is this like this reality where, nope, this guy just got his eyes burned out and he's walking around blind. <laughs> and he has absolutely no extra power. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but a lot of responsibility. <laughs> That's quite a setup. Do you think he like occasionally like trips on something and he has to be like, oh, no, I just, you know, like I can't uh... disrespect the vision. <laughs> <laughs> That that trip that was for a bigger purpose than you and I could ever understand. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, I was gonna get hit in the head with something if I hadn't fallen down. Yeah, yeah. He trips. He like spills like coffee all over his shirt. <laughs> Falls down the stairs. Uh, he does tell Johnny that she says that they're running out of time, and he says that they have an eternity. She's like, I have yeah. twins. <laughs> I'm pregnant with twins. And you don't know that. (laughs) It's so weird that you keep saying there's going to be one ruler that's like more powerful than anything. And you don't, you don't know that it's twins. (laughs) Like which one? That a doctor, the doctor didn't tell you, like nobody told you. Okay. So I do like that (laughs) he puts his hand on her abdomen and says, ah, little ruler of the universe, wait your time. This moment is mine. And then they have sex. <laughs> like, so creepy. Yeah, it's pretty creepy to talk to your unborn child right before you do his mom. Well, yeah, and you're like, this isn't your time yet. This is dad's time. <laughs> and then we we just kind of jump over to Aaliyah's point of view for a little bit. Right, we just kind of fade fade in, fade out into yeah. Aaliyah. There's not even, like, a gap. We're just at no. Aaliyah. <laughs> There's not like a little like space between paragraphs or anything. We're just like, oh, here, we're with Aaliyah now. Yeah, he just kind of lets that happen. It's fine. And we finally hear, without literally hearing from Jessica. <laughs> My God, and she's so annoying. Like from the, wor- <laughs> the first thing she says is that um, I cannot see this. She doesn't want to have a Hajj in Caladan because mm-hmm. she says there's too much rabble that will come through. And she's right. like a classic, like not in my backyard kind of white lady. Yeah. Well, I feel like she's trying to reject the religious aspect of everything. I think well, she's yes. trying. She does she, go on to say better things. Yeah. I, I feel like she doesn't like the religious aspect of Paul's leadership and, and feels like there's danger in it, which I think is what the book's kind of trying to say, too. Oh, well, I guess. Yeah. Jessica just really did not know what she was getting herself into with all of right. this. We kind of forget that, that she really did think she comes from the ducal background of. <laughs> oh, there's our favorite word coming back at us. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> the ducal tradition of law, government, for, you know, justice, order, mm-hmm. manners. But she unleashed a true religious phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So it is wild right. for her to be writing to Aaliyah, the daughter she births while giving, while drinking the water of life. And to be like, what are you doing? Like, that's too too much religion. Like, I don't know. She's so disconnected from them. There's also this weird moment where Aaliyah considers the fact that if she wanted to, she could experience having sex with her own father. She does, <laughs> <laughs> she does just wonder that. <laughs> There's nothing asking for her to wonder that. Like, right. this time, he, like, cannot get off this fucking train. <laughs> He's like, my, you know, I have the capability to see my father as lover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we get this letter from Jessica, which 
I don't know. The, this whole book, I'm missing Jessica. I and then we just too. get this leg- letter that's kind of preachy and we don't really get to hear too much about her or from yeah. her. She just feels like somebody on Kaladin, like sipping, you know, an afternoon martini and just waxing on doesn't have any connection anymore to like what's really going on. These are just her old ideas. It's almost like we're given this moment just because the end of the first book, Jessica was kind of like, well, I might go to Caladan. I might not go to Caladan. Mm-hmm. We'll see. And that this is just to answer that. Oh, yeah, she went to Caladan. I know. I really wish she had brought more of her influence in. If if she felt strongly that they shouldn't have had religion in their government, but she really should have stepped in before the billions yeah. of deaths in, you know, like for a jihad, yeah. a religious jihad. Well, I do wonder if she went there to escape it. If she was like, well, Paul's gotten in too deep and, and I can't do anything about now it. Now she's talking to Aaliyah, maybe. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's why she's yeah, writing to Aaliyah. To appeal to Aaliyah. I did like the way he talked about um, letter writing, that it was like personal in a way no recording could achieve, that it was an almost invulnerable privacy, because that is kind of nice and true. <laughs> yeah. That like the way somebody writes, even their handwriting is like, probably has no meaning to most people, except like the person you know. I thought yeah. that was pretty. Now that everything's email and text. It's just especially meaningful. So right before we get into the actual letter, it says Aaliyah reviewed the letter as she walked down the ramp to the antechamber where her guard Amazons waited. By reviewed the letter, do you think she's reading it or she's already read it and she's just playing it back in her head? Oh, cool. Yeah, let's go with she's just um, having a light, like part of her prescience, she can just see the letter like Mm -hmm. in front of her, Mm -hmm. like kind of a hologram or something yeah just like experiencing it again i don't think she needs probably the physical letter does the letter say anything else besides the idea of like faith the deadly paradox yeah the deadly pair oh yes the deadly paradox yeah government cannot be religious and self-assertive at the same time right which is true religious experience needs a spontaneity which laws inevitably suppress Mm -hmm. that makes sense and that is kind of what Paul is struggling with in his world, too. He's kind of, by gouging his eyes out, <laughs> giving fully over to faith, like you said earlier. So the end that where she says, I see the day coming where ceremony must take the place of faith and symbolism replaces morality. What do you think she means by that? I think, again, maybe I'm just too on this bureaucratic hilt. But to me, both of those words feel less personal, like... Ceremony is less personal than faith and symbolism is less personal than morality. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking where where law just becomes a law and you're not like mm-hmm. you're not considering why law is law. You're just like that's law. So that's why yes. we do it because it's the law. And I kind of almost see the specifically the ceremony takes the place of faith being representing what Paul is doing where he's trusting the vision because it's the vision. And he no longer yeah. considers what the vision means anymore or, or considers the alternatives. He's just like, this is the vision, so I'm doing I'm I'm doing the vision now. Yeah, he's just burnt out on it. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So he's he's subjugating himself completely to the higher power of his vision rather than fighting it in any way or like having any sort of like person but even though probably he still is controlling it on some <laughs> level. Yeah. So then we get to Corba. Yeah, that's and right. We get to the an amazing outfit. He's wearing like 
every piece of clothing. Oh, yeah. They talk about how Corba used to be like this, like, down and dirty, like, yeah, like j- warrior. He would, like, wear a robe and he was, like, he had a big beard and he was, like, real tough looking. And now yeah, he's a big just, like, bushy this- chest hair. Yeah. <laughs> And now he's just like this like ornate robe with gems, like covered in gems. Yeah, he's got like a vest and like puppy sleeves and mm-hmm. um and he is being captured, I guess. He's in Yeah, he's being led to his trial and it seems like Ali is gonna lead this trial and mm-hmm. everyone's like, Why isn't Paul doing it? And he and she's like, This is this is Fremen Law. I'm allowed to step in and do this. Mm-hmm. And then Paul shows up. She does it anyway. <laughs> it does it anyway. Real dick move from Paul. It was really annoying. Yeah. Because also Aaliyah didn't have like the full information yet. She wasn't even sure that he was really guilty at this point, right? I think she is. I if it, To me, because she, she kept talking about how boring it was and how like how trite it was. And it to me, it was just like, why are we having this? Paul and I both know Corb is guilty. I thought that she said at some point that like Corba proved himself to that he thought he was doing things in service of Paul. Maybe not. I I do see the part where she gets bored with it. Yeah, I mean Corba says he's innocent and then he demands to face his accuser and that's when Paul shows up mm-hmm. and Paul's like, "Well, that's Othheim, but we have Othheim's voice now. So he's talking about Bjaz or Bjaz. Bjaz. Yeah. Bjazzled. Bjaz. <laughs> But yeah, so Paul shows up and reveals that a worm's already been stolen. So how do you think they transport a worm? I mean, how are they carting them around in general? I picture like a claw machine, like a giant claw machine. <laughs> like it picks up a big <laughs> hunk of sand with a, with a worm in it. Uh-huh. Oh, it keeps like going in until it gets a worm. <laughs> until it gets a worm, yeah. Yeah, and they're like, oh, I only have five quarters. <laughs> um, Aaliyah also, int- or they introduce a, a pretty scary idea that Aaliyah could accuse anybody of anything and say that she just saw it in the future. Which she like kind of- Which essentially they're doing. So they're using Aaliyah you at know. this point to find out who helped Korba. Mm-hmm. They- they wanted right. Aaliyah to come out and look at the faces of all the other that may have helped Korba. And so she she can tell who it is. The Trials of Ruse to get these, yeah, these other names yeah. of the Nibs. Because Paul's yeah. like, we've got evidence. It, we mm-hmm. have B-Jazz, so we're going to use him. And everyone's like, well, then why did we even have this trial if you have that? And we're going to wait for B-Jazz anyway because of mm-hmm. Fremen Law. Even even Stilgar's in on it because Stilgar's the one. He's like, he's right. It's, it's Fremen Law. He has uh-huh. to face his, his accuser. So they're like, well, take him away. He'll face his accuser later. Then Aaliyah's like, hold on. You were just using me. And they did. And they did. Yep. Yeah. I mean, big deals. Useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. So then Stilgar says he's going to take him and make him talk. Yeah, or kill him. Well, probably just kill him. Yeah, yeah. I think he's going to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Aaliyah's like not happy with Stilgar. She thinks that Stilgar, yeah, she thinks Stilgar is going to interfere somehow. Right. Foolishly. And, right. And Stilgar's like, well, do you do you think that I'm not loyal? You're saying I'm not loyal? And then she's like, no, but you're going to betray Paul. Like just flat out tells him you're about to betray Paul. Wait, I thought he said... To disobey. He's not going to betray him. 
Okay. Paul has such Oh, that's a big difference. No, you're right, but but disobey is if you told Stilgar he was going to disobey Paul, he would see it the same way as betraying though. Yeah, but that's Stilgar so different. Loyal. That's because he's insanely loyal. By saying he was going to betray him, then it would say he's not loyal. Like Stilgar is going to disobey him for Paul's own good in his mind, but it's probably going to like result in something bad. Okay, fair. Fair enough. Well, fair okay, enough. Okay. No, fair difference. enough. You're right. You're right. You're right. I just, <laughs> it's just like, it's with a lot of weight because she says, I only hope it doesn't destroy you both, which just yeah. makes it sound like a big deal. Well, certainly. I mean, we, Paul no longer will stray at all from his vision. So if Stilgar does something out of line, but mm-hmm. how does that not, how does that, is that not accounted for in the vision? I mean, it's free will. Of course, this is the classic problem of mm-hmm. future telling. Stilgar makes some random decision out of loyalty that changes, you know, the trajectory of whatever future. That's what's being set up, I guess. Yeah. He's going to leap in front of the bullet on instinct. Oh, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Earlier when I was reading this, the chapter, this, the stone burner chapter, I was like, oh, yeah, they did really set up the stone burner thing. And we saw a stone burner. I was like, wait, is this going to end with someone firing a laser gun at Paul wearing a shield and it blows up the planet? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I'm ready for that. I mean, look, I think that would be cool. He's been swinging that one around for yeah. two books now. Yeah. So time to see it in action. We'll in see. which case, Stilgar couldn't jump in front of that and prevent it. That's true. Well, an exciting, well, but an exciting-ish couple of chapters. Yeah. Some, yeah. There was a bit of pontificating going on that was distracting, but overall, Paul is in a wild place right now. That is fun to watch. Yeah. He's like gone as off the rails as he can. <laughs> so I assume next, we're just going to finish the book, right? Like, yeah. I think there's... I think there might be literally four chapters. And if it's not four, it's five. We might as well just finish it. Cool. How should we end it? Should we just do, you produce a deadly paradox? This is gross. But for some reason, I I imagine someone (laughs) going into a bathroom right after someone else and yelling out, you produce a deadly paradox. Okay, great. Thanks. We'll end it on that now. <laughs> well, also in this chapter, we like, for some reason, he mentions Aaliyah's toilet time. Yeah, she has her toilet time. <laughs> in this same chapter where she's talking about having, having sex, sex with her dad. dad. <laughs> she's just fully living her life right yeah. now. Enjoying a toilet time, <laughs> enjoying a few fantasies. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, yeah, she's like a... 40-year-old bachelor. Okay, so until next time, you You produce produce a a deadly deadly paradox. paradox. Sounded perfect. Okay, good. But good job. Okay, goodbye. Doctor, my eyes I cannot see the sky Is this the prize For having learned how not to cry